Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. Good to uh, sing together uh, God's praises. And I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians chapter 12, and I want us to read together verses 1 uh, through 6. Incidentally, I just learned this week that that hymn we just sung is written and based on the final deathbed words of Puritan Samuel Rutherford, who when he was dying cried out, glory, glory is all I see, and spoke of looking and longing for Emmanuel's land. And may we uh, live such a life that even our dying words would inspire someone to write hymns and to imitate our faith. But I want to consider this morning the subject of heaven as we considered the subject of hell last week. Just one, one more week of brief interruption from John chapter 7, and then, Lord willing, we will get back to John next week. But let's hear together the Word of God uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. This is the Word of God. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be, or hears from me. Amen. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for sweet hymns that transport our hearts and our minds into glories that are beyond things that we have yet to experience. We thank You for filling our hearts with love and faith and hope in Christ. We thank You that You have taught us that truly the glory of Emmanuel's land is Emmanuel Himself. And that we will not gaze primarily at glory, but primarily upon the King of glory. Father, we pray that You would fix our hearts as Your people on the things of eternity and the world to come. Father, we are are so easily distracted. And in our minds, we are so quickly deterred from our heavenly journey and we are so quickly taken off the path. And we pray, Father, that You would make us more steadfast and fixed upon glory that is fast approaching. Father, increase our faith to believe this. We pray that You would keep us from being caught up in the things of this temporal life that draw our affections and our attention away, 
that we would live as those with one purpose, to reach the celestial city, to find ourselves among the blessed, among those who will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, we pray for any and all here this morning who do not know Christ. They do not know what we sing of when we sing of Emmanuel's glory. Those who are without hope and without God in the world, we pray for them. We pray that you would renew their hearts, create within them new affections for glory above, that they would fear sin and its consequence and its destination that they would look to Christ, that they would serve Him, that they would trust Him all the days of their lives. We pray for our children, all of our our little ones, our teenagers. Father, be gracious to them. Make them more faithful than we are. We pray that they would be warriors in the cause of the kingdom of Christ, that they would fight valiantly, Give them faith. Give them great assurance that causes them to endure all suffering and all loss for the sake of the greater glory of Emmanuel's land. Father, hear our cries, we pray. Draw near to us as we consider your word. We pray that you would give us affections for our God. That you would give us renewed love for Christ and a desire to be with him where he is and to see his glory. Build your church, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned, I want to this morning offer a follow-up sermon to last week's sermon in which we considered the subject of the terrors of hell by considering this morning something of the glories of heaven. And right away, that's a tall order because the Apostle Paul himself who was mysteriously and temporarily, as we've read, taken up into the very glories of the third heaven. And Paul, who heard things from that realm, even he says that ultimately he could not convey them. And what he means by that is not that it is unlawful or impossible for us to say anything about heaven, but rather he means, and he's indicating that the joys and the glories of the world to come that is awaiting the children of God that will be revealed to us, those joys and glories supersede in every way our earthly categories of understanding. The gifts that God has prepared for His children, which Paul here calls paradise, are beyond the greatest paradise we can, even with the most sanctified imagination, imagine. And these two very distinct destinations, heaven and hell, in one of which every single one of us, men and women and children, will one day find ourselves, these two ultimate destinations serve together like the two hands of a workman. The one hand works as a deterrent from sin, and with its terror, it drives us away from punishment and terror, 
And the other, in its sweetness, is an incentive to faith and good works as it allures us and draws us sweetly towards the peace of God to be enjoyed in heaven. And so what I want to, what I want to do this morning is from various texts, I want to open up this subject the subject of heaven, as I've said, a subject which we cannot ever think that we can speak adequately on, and yet a subject that God does reveal to us in His Word that I hope and I pray that not only will enlighten our minds as to the things of heaven, but will also warm our affections and our desires for the heavenly life. So I want to open up four subjects related to the the subject of heaven And then as we close, I'll draw application and exhortation. Okay, so four subjects. Subject number one, where is heaven? Where is heaven? Or, to be more precise, where will the saints, after the resurrection of their bodies, and after the great judgment of the last day, And after the the wicked have been cast into hell, where will the redeemed saints, both body and soul, enjoy the peace and inexpressible joy God has laid up for them? And the answer is heaven. Now, if you're paying attention, I didn't really answer the question because I asked, where is heaven? (laughs) And my answer was, heaven is in heaven. And that's kind of goes without saying. But here's where I need to admit, or I will admit, that I've undergone a bit of a, a theological change and shift in my thinking on this subject. And yes, believe it or not, that happens to pastors too, probably more than you realize. Um, and it, this isn't a matter of primary importance. It's not like we fall out with people who have a different opinion on this. But... Church history, and the Puritans in particular, have a, a way of confronting you with certain things, and often with such scriptural force that they demand your submission. And that's a bit of what's happened to me. I used to believe, uh, and there are many who believe this today, and good brothers, um, I used to believe that our eternal dwelling place after the resurrection is going to be here. Right? On, on a new, uh, renewed earth. And that heaven, what we call heaven, is merely the intermediate state where the souls of just men made perfect go before the resurrection. But I don't think that's the case. Rather, the eternal dwelling place of all the redeemed saints and of all the holy angels will be in this place which Paul saw in 2 Corinthians 12, which he calls paradise or the third heaven. Now, that term, third heaven, probably strikes us as somewhat interesting. Uh, The word heaven is used in, in various ways in Scripture, but the idea of a three tiered heaven, if you will, or That's not the best way to put it. Not saying that heaven is divided into three, but rather that there are three heavens before the final heaven. Um, It it is a view that's well attested in Scripture. And when Paul says that he was taken up into the third heaven, what does that presuppose? 
that there's a first heaven and a second heaven, right? We don't usually call, call things the third if there's nothing that comes before them. The first heaven, sometimes theologians call this the, the aerial heaven, is the mo- it would be our most immediate atmospheric heaven. So, for instance, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, when Jesus is encouraging His people not to be anxious, He tells us, look at the birds of the air. But literally, it's look at the birds of heaven. Right? That's, that's the first heaven. But there's also a second heaven. Sometimes theologians call this the astral heaven. And it's the realm beyond the first heaven. And it's the realm of the stars and the planets. So for instance, Deuteronomy 17 verse 3. God tells Israel that they are to punish anyone in Israel who, quote, has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven. So that's the second heaven. The realm beyond where the birds fly. The realm of the planets and the stars. And then you have what Paul speaks of here, the third heaven. The heaven that is above all the visible heavens, above the air, above the sun, above the moon, above all the stars, and this is the celestial heaven to which Jesus Christ bodily ascended and now sits in all of His glory. This is why Hebrews 4.14, for instance, says... Since we have therefore a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, plural, and then if you compare that with then Colossians 3 verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, set your mind on the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's the third heaven. Christ passed through the first two heavens and is seated now in this glorious place as uh, at the right hand of the Father. And on that note, brothers and sisters, if it's, it should be obvious, but just to make it explicit, heaven, so many people talk about heaven as though it is just some ethereal place. And that's not the way the Bible describes heaven at all. Heaven is an actual place created by God, where our Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, presently dwells in all of His glory. Hebrews 11, verse 16. Hebrews 11 is the chapter on on faith. The hall of faith. Verse 16, the writer says that the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob desired a better country than the one that they had. And then he says, that is a heavenly one. And he says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. This heavenly country, this city, it's it's described different ways in the New Testament, is prepared by God for His people and is the place where 
God's glory most brightly and most gloriously is manifested for the enjoyment of all His redeemed saints and the holy angels. Now, that doesn't answer the question, why do I think that this is the place where we will spend eternity, both body and soul? And I'll just give you, there's many passages I wish we had time to go to. I'll just give you two this morning. One is John 14, verse 3. This is a very important text for the Puritans. John 14, verse 3, towards the beginning of the, um, of the upper room discourse as Jesus is departing and He's comforting His disciples. And He says to His disciples on the night of His departure, He says, I go and prepare a place for you. That is... Jesus is leaving this earth and He's going on an errand to prepare a place for His people. And then He says to them, I will come again, which I believe is a reference to the second coming, and He says, and I will take you to Myself that you may be, or that where I am, you may be also. Fast forward three chapters still in the Upper Room Discourse John 17, verse 24, Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is, again, right before He's departing out of the world. And He prays, Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me may be with Me where I am to see My glory that You have given Me because You have loved Me from before the foundation of the world. We can talk about that further. That's the first subject. Subject number one is where is heaven? Where will the saints enjoy the bliss of eternity of gazing upon the glory of God? Subject number two, what will this other world be like? What will this other world be like? And honestly, let me just say, even if you're not fully persuaded and in agreement with me on the first point, everything that follows here, you can still perfectly agree with. So don't let that be a hang up, okay? Subject number two, what will the other world be like? This is one of those subjects where we we inquire with humility. We realize that we are treading upon things where even angels fear to tread, and yet we dare to tread because God has spoken on these things. And the Scriptures give us this window that the other world, the new world, will be a a glorious future state that will be mysteriously mixed with continuity from this life and great discontinuity. For instance, there will be continuity in the sense that we will be there and we will still be us. And yet, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, he simply describes it with the simple words, they will be changed. So it will be us, but it changed us. And Paul goes on and elaborates, not exhaustively, on a bit of what something of that magnificent change will be in our bodies. He says, in the twinkling of an eye, the corruptible will become incorruptible. So it will be us, but no longer able to be corrupted by sin. He says that that which is mortal will put on immortality. So we will no longer be subject to death. 
he says that the natural body that was sown will be raised a spiritual body, which doesn't mean immaterial. Uh, some, some have taken that to mean that Paul's emphasizing the spiritual state such that we will have our sustenance from the glory of God that we won't experience the weaknesses of this natural body, like hunger and thirst and, and need of sleep and so on. So Paul does describe something of our bodies, and we'll, we'll talk about that more in the next, the next point. But putting us aside and what we will be like in glory, what will the world of heaven itself be like? I've got, I believe, four things for you. Number one, and we have to start here, when we talk about what the other world will be like, we must begin by saying it is, go- it is indescribable until we get there. Did I cut out? No. It's in- the world to come is indescribable until we get there. And that's, that might sound like a contradiction. Well, then what are you even going to go on to say? <laughs> um, But God has given us this amazing ability in our language such that with our limited language, we can describe the indescribable without describing what the indescribable is. Right? Somewhat similar to how we talk about God. Paul himself says he could not utter the things which he heard in heaven. And even if he could, we could not presently comprehend his meaning. You remember Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John 3 when He says, if you haven't believed, even though I've spoken to you earthly things, what if I spoke to you heavenly things? I'll give you a faint example. Obviously, it breaks down very quickly. It's somewhat like trying to explain to your two-year-old son or daughter what an all-access, just full-on everything pass to Legoland is like. You could try, and you can kind of get at some of, the, some of the main things and try to communicate it to them, but ultimately, your two-year-old just doesn't have the faculties. Until he gets there, he isn't going to be able to grasp the glories of what you're talking about. And it really becomes one of those things where it just is, it, it's like, son, you're just going to have to take it in when you see it for yourself. And that's what heaven is like from our perspective. We, if you, you know this, all we have ever known in our experience is this life of sin and misery and heartache and suffering and affliction. And even as a Christian, all we've ever known is the Christian life is a war, the Christian life is a marathon. The Christian life is one in which we are always kicking back sin that is always nipping at our heels. The Christian life is one of interrupted and imperfect fellowship with God. And when you live that way for long enough, for year after year after year, you begin to think that this is the only mode of existence that there must be. Because it's all you've ever known. But Christian, what God's Word describes to the Christian and promises the Christian is that we have not even begun 
to experience the fullness of the liberation of the sons of God that will be revealed. And that doesn't diminish our hope for heaven. The fact that we can't even begin to imagine what it will be like. Rather, it excites us to hope and to think upon greater things than we can even imagine. It excites us to think upon the fact that the Christian's reward was not designed by the Christian. Right? That would be one thing if we, we designed our own heaven and paradise. But we would very, get, very quickly get bored even with a paradise we designed but rather the all-wise and omnipotent and gracious God has designed the reward that His children will enter into. And Jesus says to us, if you who are evil, right, you fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will my Father give good gifts? How, how true is that of heaven? Even though we cannot begin to imagine it here, a father always reserves his, his chiefest and choicest blessings for his children. And as Paul says elsewhere, eye has not seen and ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. That's the first thing regarding what the, what the coming world will be like. It's beyond our present understanding. Secondly, it is a place of beauty and regal glory. It is a place of beauty and regal glory. And if we had time this morning, there are portions of Revelation, particularly chapter 21 and elsewhere, that I would love to read in their entirety. But suffice it to say, when we see descriptions, particularly Revelation, though it's not exclusively Revelation, of the beauty and the the regal glory of the place that God's people will inhabit for all of eternity, those, what we need to realize is that those are just merely mere earthly descriptions of even greater things. John, as it were, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is pulling from human language the greatest categories he can pull from to try to describe a city that is fit for a king. And not just any king, but the king of kings and the lord of lords. We, well, maybe you've not been there, but you've probably all seen in pictures or TV or whatever. Certain structures, certain cities or parts of cities that it is honestly mind-boggling when you see the attention to detail and how no expense was spared. And, And you try to imagine how much human time and how many hours and Uh, blood and sweat and tears were poured into this. The the city of the children of God where Christ reigns, those things are but a faint picture that points us to something that is infinitely greater than Solomon's kingdom, infinitely greater than the greatest kingdoms upon earth, a place where there will be nothing but beauty as far as the eye can see. Thirdly, third description of the, of the coming world, the saints will know and recognize each other in glory. The saints will know and recognize each other in glory. 
Oftentimes, Christians, we ask questions thinking about what heaven will be like. What will our relationship be to those that we've known here? Things like that. I believe that there's ample biblical evidence to tell us that the saints in glory will know and be acquainted with and recognize others who are glorified together in Christ with them. For instance, I'll give you one reason that I think that. There's, there's others. When Moses and Elijah met with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples don't say, who are these two figures? But even Peter, Peter's not known for being the sharpest one. Peter knows this is Moses and Elijah. Meet, and they're obviously the two heads of the Old Testament, if you will, Moses and the prophets, meeting with our Lord. And they recognized Him. And so in heaven, saints will recognize and know each other. I believe pastors will know their people. Members will know their pastors. Parents will know their children. Children will know their parents. Uh, Wilhelmus Abrockel says, quote, no one will be a stranger to each other and no one will be considered a stranger by anyone. Mutual fellowship in heaven will be perfect beyond anything we have experienced this side of glory. The saints, I believe, will recount to each other the ways for eternity, the ways that the Lord led them. They will recount how the Lord delivered their souls again and again and again. And together, we will glorify the Lord. That, that's one thing that I think sometimes we, we don't think about as we ought that in heaven, the fellowship of the saints, just as it's a vital aspect of our life here, that is going to be a rich aspect of the heavenly life. It's not only going to be focused immediately upon the Lord Himself, but also we will rejoice in the Lord as we rejoice in the grace of God to our fellow redeemed saints. And our thoughts will be upon them and our fellowship will be sweet and mutually upbuilding into eternity. That's the third thing. Fourth, fourth aspect of what the world, coming world will be like is this, that the saints will differ in degrees of glory. The saints will differ in degrees of glory. Now, there, there are some who don't necessarily embrace this idea, um, but there are a number of passages in the New Testament that seem to allude to this reality. That in the eternal state, some saints will be given more capacity for glory than others are given. And just to be clear, all saints will be filled with joy and with happiness to overflowing. Okay? So we're not talking about anyone being dissatisfied in heaven. There will be no dissatisfaction in heaven. Uh, Psalm 17.15 says, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness and I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. There will be no dissatisfaction in heaven. But, this is how Wilhelmus Albrockel puts it very helpfully, 
He said, as one vessel can contain more than another vessel and yet both be full, we believe also that one saint will excel another in glory. Not according to merit. That, um, Roman Catholicism argues that these things will be according to merit. But rather, according to the graciousness of God who dispenses His gifts according to His good pleasure. Those who have suffered much for the cause of Christ. Those who have been faithful in much. Uh, those, uh, those who have given their lives for Christ will, because of their greater experiences of suffering, be graciously given deeper capacities for the enjoyment of glory. One such pa- I'll give you a couple, but one passage that alludes to this is 1 Corinthians 15, 41. 1 Corinthians 15 is that great chapter on the resurrection. And in verse 44, Paul's giving an analogy for the resurrection of the dead. And he says, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. He seems to be describing there that even as we will all be raised with new bodies, glorified bodies, just as the sun and the moon and the stars differ in the degree of glory, so it will be in the resurrection of the dead. Or another one, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is contrasting, um, he's contrasting not the difference between faithful workers and unfaithful workers, but rather he's speaking about his work and Apollos' work. Right? You remember Corinth was all caught up in, I'm of this guy, I'm of this guy. And Paul's trying to convince them that we're all on the same team, we just play different parts. And in chapter 3, verse 8, he's contrasting his work of planting with Apollos' work of watering. Both are workers of, of the Lord. Both are good workers, faithful workers. And he says, one plants and another waters. Or he says, excuse me, he says, now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Again, not that one of them was unfaithful and the other was faithful. He doesn't say one's going to be punished while the other's rewarded. But he says each of us will be rewarded according to his own labor. We could go on other texts. Jesus gives several parables about the varying rewards of those who stewarded what he gave them well and faithfully. And just, just for clarity, when, I know that when we think of that, we immediately think more is better. We immediately think more means envy or more means boasting on the part of him who has more. In heaven, we will have such transformed hearts that he who is given greater capacity for enjoyment of glory will be something that everyone else rejoices in together with him. And there will be no one who boasts of what he has because it is all of grace. So that's the... That's something of what the world, the coming world will be like. Obviously, we could open up many, many more things. That brings us to our third, third subject this morning. Our third subject, what are the blessings of heaven for the saint? What are the blessings of heaven for the saint? 
And Christian, there are many things about heaven that should excite our hearts to desire to get there as quickly as we possibly can. (laughs) And the streets of gold, the, the foundations of precious stones, all of those things absolutely are given to us by God to cause us to think upon the beauty of the place. But second to the beatific vision of Christ, which we'll talk about in a moment, the most appealing thing about heaven is what it means for us in our transformed state. And I want to encourage you, Christian, wearied as you are on your journey in this pilgrimage, fix heaven in your heart and it will make your journey a lot lighter and a lot easier. Christopher Love, I mentioned him last week. He was a Puritan. He was a Puritan who was executed by the Puritans uh, for alleged um, conspiracy um, and overthrow of the government. I think it was an unfortunate thing personally, but that's, some, that's not really the main point. The point is Christopher Love was a man, such was his assurance. If you read his final words as he addressed the crowds before his beheading, and you read his letters to his wife the night before they part ways, um, he says things like, I am sure that tomorrow when I walk up to the gallows, I will walk up there just as joyfully as I went down to St. Giles Church to be married to you. And as he was asked, as he approached his execution, he, he was asked how he was faring, and he responded with the words, Sir, I bless God. My heart is in heaven. I am well. And he says many, many more things that stir the heart. Christian, as many as are the terrors of hell that we discussed, we opened up last week, the glories of heaven surpass them all and they will make amends in a moment for all of the crosses here on earth. First, consider what will not be present for the glorified saint in heaven. What will not be present? There are times when deprivation is a good thing. Usually we use that word in a negative sense when we're deprived of something. But deprivation is a glorious thing when we are deprived of everything that is evil. In heaven, in both our body and our soul, there will be nothing. And this is one of those things we can't even imagine. There will be nothing that causes the Christian any discomfort or unrest. Forever. If you just stop and think for a moment during the day of how often we are assaulted in this life with stresses and discomforts and things that put us at unrest, they are endless. In heaven, all of those things will be done away with. First of all, our bodies will be deprived of anything harmful. In heaven, our bodies will become incapable of suffering, of experiencing sorrow, disease, poverty, heat, cold, nakedness, being sinned against, being hated by enemies, being persecuted, you name it. All of that in the twinkling of an eye will be gone. 
just banished from the borders of heaven. Revelation 21, verse 4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things are passed away. That's what won't, won't be there for our bodies. Okay? That's, the, that's the deprivation part, the good part of deprivation. But that's not the end of the story for our bodies. Not only will there not be those things that afflict us, more than that, our bodies will be clothed with the divine life to serve God in Jesus Christ with vigor and eagerness. Right? It's not just the absence of fatigue and decay and, and pain. It's the invigorating power of the divine life energizing these bodies with holy strength and power from on high. Paul says in Philippians 3.21, as he gives that great section on not having a righteousness of his own, but being found in Christ, having a righteousness that comes through faith, that comes from God, in Jesus Christ, he says that in Christ, our lowly bodies will be transformed and conformed to Christ's glorified body. After His glorified state, and resurrected state. These present bodies, Christopher Love, uh, quote him again, he said that these present bodies are always in a lumpish and heavy state. (laughs) I know that sounds like a funny way to describe it, but that's... That's true. Think about these bodies. How, how often they just don't desire to do the will of God. And, and you feel the, the war between the flesh. He says these bodies, which are always now in a lumpish and heavy state, will be made agile as we are spurred on to all good duties and made nimble and serve God with an eager fashion. Like the angels, one of the things the angels are are taught, uh, one of the things we're taught about the angels is their eagerness to do the will of God. Always ready to serve the Lord their God. And like the angels, we will become those who are eager in body to do the bidding of our God. That's something of what our bodies will be like. What about the soul? What about our soul in heaven? I'll start with, again, deprivation and then the blessings. Number one, and there are so many things we could mention here. Number one, Christian, we will be finally and completely liberated from the war of the flesh against the spirit. I think it was John MacArthur, I I could be remembering the quote wrong, but I think it was him, who said, you know, there there are many things that many people look forward to heaven, uh, look forward to heaven for. And he said, one of the main things I look forward to heaven for is because I am done with sin. And I am tired of sin. Christian, can you imagine the weight and the burden 
that will fall from your shoulders when you hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And at that moment, the saint's war is forever behind him and he enters heaven's rest. Never again to have a moment of regret. No more guilt. No more anguish. No more tears of frustration with our own hearts that we don't live before God the way we ought to live before God. When we walk into heaven, we will exchange these hearts of grace, which we're thankful for grace. But grace is not all there is. And we will gladly exchange these hearts of grace for hearts of glory, which is far better. And we will exchange this will, which now is able to desire both the good and the bad, and we will exchange it for a will that will only and always and forever desire that which is good and holy. Also, Christian... The moment you enter heaven, you will check in all doubt at the door. Right? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Lord, why are you far from me? Psalm 130, like the watchman, I wait for the Lord. All of those things will be a thing of the past. In heaven, the quest for assurance is over. There's no more questioning, no more searching, but rather simply a full glorious assurance of I have made it. Christ is mine, and I now see that He was always mine, but now my eyes see what then I simply believe by faith. There will be also no more provocations to sin in heaven. No longer will our own hearts be idol factories that generate their own idolatry. No longer will they be prone to leave the God they love. No longer are they fickle in their allegiance to the one who died and hung upon the tree for me. No more Satan to make suggestions to us. No more Vanity Fair to entice us. The, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life will be banished. No more fear of punishment. No more fear of chastisement. All of it gone. But all of that is subservient to the preeminent blessing of heaven. And that is what is called the beatific vision. When we see God as He is, and we shall be made like Him. The sight of Jesus Christ in glory will be the main attraction of heaven. And it's just a testimony of how sinful our hearts still are. When if we're honest, there are times when we feel like we're going to be more excited about the streets of gold than we are seeing Christ. 
And that's the glorious thing about heaven is not only is it glorious, but God changes us so that we are fit to comprehend glory. One sight of Christ will immediately cause all of your, all the thoughts of all the suffering of this life and all of the lives of God's saints to become as a drop in a bucket. The heaven of heavens is Christ. Because in Christ dwells all the fullness of deity bodily. And He is the invisible God in flesh whom we worship. The fullest manifestation of the glory of God we will ever behold. He is the tree of life whose branches are for the healing of the nations. And the never-ending flowing fountain of living waters who quenches every desire and thirst His people will ever have. We will walk with the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. And He will talk with us. And He will lead us. And He will guide us. And He will reign over us. And it will be the most blessed experience that the redeemed saint can ever imagine. Leading us day by day deeper. And that's the thing about God. I mentioned earlier, if we created our own heaven, we would be excited for a little while, but eventually you exhaust your own heaven. But you never exhaust God who is infinite. Christ, God in the flesh, will forever lead us into deeper and deeper and more glorious understanding and comprehension of the glories and the love of God. Thomas Goodwin said, what will heaven be but the seeing of the glory of Christ? He said, if God had created worlds of glorious creatures, they never could have expressed His glory as His Son expresses His glory. Therefore, he says, heaven is thus described in John 17. I desire that they may be with me where I am to behold my glory. He says, wherein therefore lies that great communion of glory that shall be in heaven. It is in the seeing the glory of Christ who is the image of the invisible God that is worshipped. It is therefore the seeing of Christ that makes heaven. And then he quotes a, what had become a common phrase in his day. He said, Therefore, as one has said, if I were to be cast into any hole, if I could have but a cranny, right, a little tiny hole, by which he says, by which they say, if I could have but a cranny to always behold Christ, it would be heaven enough. That brings us to our application. And we'll, we'll close shortly here. Our application. Number one, I want, first of all, I want to speak to the unbeliever this morning, and then secondly, to the Christian. First of all, unbeliever, you're here and you are outside of Christ for whatever reason God in His providence has brought you here this morning to hear something of the glorious gifts that He has laid up for His children. I want to plead with you. Strive with all your might to obtain this glory. You're here and you're yet unconverted. 
you're yet to turn to God for grace. And you've seen the bliss that awaits the children of God and how all of their toil and their sufferings will suddenly give way to eternal bliss. While you in your present state, as you stay far off from Christ, have nothing but greater and greater torments ahead of you. You need to hear the pleading voice of Christ with you this morning. Christ stands ready and open to receive you if you will come to Him. Scripture tells you to strive to enter the narrow gate that leads to life. And you might be here, and as you hear me say that, you're thinking to yourself, the problem with that is I have no desire for these heavenly things. I have no strength. I have no vigor. I understand that. But here's the choice you have. You can either just passively admit defeat to sin's dominion, which will bring you to hell. Or rather, you can cry out to God who has the power to change the heart. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Search after God while He may yet be found. A weak searching after God is better than no searching at all. Lamentations 5.21 is a prayer that says, Cause us to return, O God, and we will return. May that be the prayer of your heart. I know you feel your weakness and your inability to desire the things that you don't desire. But God is able to change the heart. And strive, therefore, with all your might to get Christ, to love Christ, and to trust Christ so that you may have Christ for eternity. Secondly, I want to speak to the believer. Several things that I've just compiled into one one subject here. Christian... Reckon the things of the present world as insignificant in comparison to gaining the world to come. Consider the things of the present world as insignificant in comparison to gaining the world to come. Christian, this is where hope and faith come into play. Paul says, Romans 8, who hopes for what he sees? If we already have it, it's not hope. Christian, God has promised abundant blessing and rest for those who patiently wait for it. We do not yet possess it as our reward. Christ is in our hearts, but He is not yet in our sight. We have a longing for Emmanuel's land, but we haven't yet crossed the river Jordan and actually possessed it for ourselves. But it is there. And God tells us He's keeping it for us and us for it. But here's the thing. Because we do not see it yet, the things of this world 
Things like houses and lands and riches and prestige and reputation, the things of this world appear to us as far greater than they actually are. And they glitter in our eyes more than they should. Because we don't think as often and as deeply enough about the surpassing riches that that crown of heaven will give to us. Romans 8.18 Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that includes all losses, are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. And Christian, if we could if we could but stamp that on our eyeballs every single day and every, mo- every moment, we would be far better off. If every time we lose in this life for the sake of Christ, whether that means sacrificing something that I could have had for the sake of someone else, or sacrificing my reputation for the sake of being faithful to Christ's Word, or whatever it is, sacrificing my desire for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. If we could remember this loss does not compare to the glory that is going to be revealed in the children of God, it would make this journey a lot less difficult and a lot easier to bear as we keep our eyes focused upon the prize. That's what That's what Hebrews 11 is about and spurring us on to. Think about the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They dwelt in tents in a land that wasn't even their own. They had very little by way of worldly prestige. Abraham wasn't a king. And Hebrews says they were content with that. Why? Because they were looking for a heavenly country whose builder and maker is God. Moses, who could have been called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, chose not to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and rather endure the suffering of Christ because Hebrews says he reckoned or considered the sufferings of Christ of more value than all the riches of Egypt. He looked to the reward. Wilhelmus Abrockel said, if we could give ourselves to keeping heaven at the forefront of our mind and not just give it a fleeting thought from time to time, he said, then we would be as someone who departs to take possession of a very great inheritance and who presently being poor and destitute will gladly endure a difficult day of travel. And Christian, in light, of eternity, in, in light of eternity, that's really what this life is, isn't it? Is it is a singular difficult day of travel to get our eternal glorious inheritance. You think of another faint example. You think about how different your attitude at least for those of you who have the humility to admit that this is true of you. You think about how different your attitude is between 9 a.m. on Monday morning as you show up to work 
and 4 p.m. on Friday afternoon. On Monday, it seems like rest is just so far away. And almost like it's not even worth thinking about. Because I've got so much trouble that's coming my way between now and then when rest comes. But on Friday afternoon, you gladly receive those same troubles with an entirely different attitude. And suddenly, those troubles don't seem so daunting and so insurmountable, and you even with gladness can endure through them because you know, soon I will be freed from these concerns and I will enter my rest. Christian, rest is coming more quickly than we realize. Romans 13, 11, Do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Christian, anticipate the reality that such glory will shortly be your portion. And therefore, live life from that. Hasten to complete your task as a servant good and faithful. Hasten to be a godly example of faith and of courage and one who's full of a hope of glory. We all know those people who, like Christopher Love, they aren't yet in heaven, but heaven is already in their heart. I'll close with an Abrakel quote. He said, Make this hope of glory known to others and lead them along into this felicity so that you may join the Lord Jesus in saying, Father, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work that you gave me to do. I have manifested your name unto men. And now, O Father, glorify me. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, fix our hearts upon glory, we pray. Be merciful to us. Fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus. Fill our hearts with sweet communion with Him. Father, we will never desire heaven as we ought if we do not pursue Christ here below. We pray that You would help us to more sincerely walk with Christ, to know Him as a friend, to know Him as our Redeemer and our Helper. Write these things on our heart. Write your word upon our hearts, we pray. Cause your spirit to create within us love for these truths and a hope and a faith that believes that these words that you have given to us are true. Bless us now as we come to the Lord's table. Be gracious to your people and build us up, we ask. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.